Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Marshall Poe. Marshall is a historian of early modern Russia and the founder, editor-in-chief, and grand impresario of the New Books Network, a consortium of podcast channels publishing 125 episodes every month. That's that's probably – is that low now, Marshall? Uh, Let's see. Uh, Something like that. Yeah, Yeah, something like that. He's the author most recently of How to Read a History Book. Marshall, welcome. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. I I, I appreciate it. Uh, this is going to be, a, as I said to you before we began recording, this is going to be dangerously like a dude's chatting episode of a podcast. But we are going to be chatting about um, what you suggested we talk about, how to get serious historical ideas out to a wider public. So let's bracket that. We'll come back to it. But I, I, you have one of the most interesting Wikipedia pages of any living historian. I mean, Michel Foucault has a more interesting one. Let's just be, be honest about that. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but living historians, I mean – a man who ran, who stumbled, a Kansas boy who stumbled across a BTK Dennis Raider serial killer crime scene. I did, yes. And played basketball with Barack Obama. That's I believe true. I, I've I heard did. you say that he has no left hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shows America is that not is a correct. police. It shows America is not a police state. The fact that you yep. are still alive. Yes, uh, that's, I, I think that's I, true. I, I don't think that he probably would appreciate that. No, uh, no, no. I'm sure he doesn't return my phone calls, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Most, I most, schooled him. I really did. I schooled him back in the yeah, day. He's like, a very nice guy, by the way. I remember him well and used to go play with those guys. It was fun. The um, What was the BTK crime scene all about, by the way? Uh, I was it? just, I lived in Wichita. I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, and it was right around the corner from where I lived. It was across the street from the armory, if I recall correctly. And I saw all these cars and I wandered over there and I didn't know what the hell it was. I was a little kid and. There it was. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, um, so that's all great, but, you know. And I was a Lutheran, just like Dennis Rader. Were you in the same same (laughs) church? I I went to Holy Cross. I think that's Missouri Synod. He was in the other one. Yeah, he was in the (laughs) – so, yeah. Um, But let's talk about the really important and weird thing in your life. You're a historian of early modern Russia. Yeah. How'd that happen? I mean, yeah, that ATK happened. crime scene. So that's, that's, yeah, yeah that's that is normal, a strange. How did that happen? Russia, yeah. How did that happen? Well, you know, I was really hoping as a young man to become um, Michael Jordan or something like it. And that, that sure. didn't really work out because I wasn't actually very good at basketball. So, better uh, than some. Yeah, well, but, yeah, better than some, but not very good. <laughs> and so uh, I went to college, and I, I won't go into great biographical detail about no. my upbringing, um, but. Uh, I met a man there, and his name's Dan Kaiser, and he's uh, still alive and well. And as I sometimes say, with a certain degree of exaggeration, he was the first sober adult male I had ever met. (laughs) And and, uh, I simply glommed onto him, and he was a historian of early modern Russia. This was at Grinnell College in Iowa, and... Uh, he told me what to do, and I was basically going to do whatever he told me to do. Yeah. And so I just did what he told me to do. He said, take Russian and take these classes and so on and so forth. And so I did those things because I very much admired him, and I still do. And I I think that meeting him was uh, really 
one of the best things that ever happened in my entire life. It turned out that I was actually pretty good with books and writing and at least better than I thought I had been. And he told me that and encouraged me. And then I went to graduate school, as I call it. And, <laughs> and, Ooh, that's a joke. and then uh, I became a early modern Russian historian. That's exactly so, right. Yes. And because he was an early modern Russian yeah, historian. Yeah, that's exactly right. He was an early modern Russian historian. Because yes. when you were in graduate school, uh, the, the certainly even then, there was still a gravitational field towards Soviet Russia. You ended up. Were you trying to understand Russia's soul or something like that? Look deep within no, its eyes. No, and... I, I was. I was just really more interested in the early modern period. And you have to remember, at that time, this was the eighties. There was, you know, Soviet history really wasn't a thing yet. It was still kind hmm. of in the in the. It was. It was now again. Had I studied Soviet history, I'm sure I I would have had a, a more a more conventional career. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, but it really wasn't the case that a lot of historians studied the Soviet Union. It was still in the political science or government department at that time. And and my advisor in graduate school would would hear nothing of studying the Soviet Union. That was like contemporary events for him. He's <laughs> Russian. And no, you just couldn't do that. Who was your advisor and, in grad school? Uh, Nicholas Rozanovsky. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I've heard. I mean, yeah. Yeah. No, he wrote the big textbook. And then I spent a long time at, uh, with Ned Keenan, who I should mention at Harvard. Uh, he was also a mentor of mine and he was an early modernist and, um, and also very influential on my career such as it was. But yeah, I mean, even then it was a strange thing to be doing. Almost nobody did it. Right, uh, and I, and I just happened into it. It wasn't, you know, I, I, I I'm not of a Russian background. I don't really care. I mean, I it just I just happen to be interested in it. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I've often thought that uh, uh, my problem, probably as a historian, certainly a historian of the 21st century, is that I, if uh, a tall, swarthy man appeared in a in a red cape and a cloud of smoke and said, you know, your soul. Or study South Indian history. I would say South Indian history sounds great. Yeah. Uh, there's no yeah, reason no, to give my soul to you. I mean, there's got to be. Yeah, I mean, I, there's got to be I interesting stuff say, going there. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I should also say that I went to the liberal arts college and really drank the Kool Aid. I, I, I loved it there. I yeah. loved my years as an undergraduate. I just loved taking all the different classes, and I used to audit classes, and I was just like a thirsty man. I, I, mm -hmm. I just drank it up and, and loved it. Uh, and I can't really explain why. And I still kind of am obsessive about certain things. Like I, I still write books, even though I, I stand to gain absolutely nothing from it. <laughs> oh, <that's... laughs> nothing. It is nothing. And a friend of mine said, actually a guy in business who I do business with, he said, Marshall, that's a nice hobby. And I'm like, you know what? That's really what it's always been. Hobby. Yeah, it's, it's a really it's turning into a really grueling hobby that's for sure yeah it's, yeah so it, it, it just uh, I, I enjoyed it and I enjoyed talking to people and I enjoyed exchanging the ideas and thinking about things and 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 you know it was it was very different than basketball let's put it that way mm -hmm. um, so what books have you I mean you but you didn't actually go back originally to liberal arts schools you went to research R1 universities, right? I, I applied for a zillion jobs when I got out of graduate school, and I got, and we promised we weren't going to talk about this, but I got one. Oh, Every boy. place else, a zillion, I got one, Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> 
which is that tells that, you a lot, doesn't that, it? That's gonna be that's gonna be so weird to people to hear. Uh, but, yeah, I know, but yeah, I got one. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, now there so, were extraneous circumstances there, but it, I knew people there, so that, that was another thing. But we weren't going to talk about that. But anyway, oh, yeah. yeah. So I, I um. Well, we kind of um, had to talk about that. It was just uh, well, yeah. I, I, so then I went and I taught there for a while, and 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 then I taught. Uh, and then actually, after a long time there, I wasn't on a tenure track job there, but I taught for a long time there, and I enjoyed it. And um, I got to work with Keenan a lot, and I met a lot of really great people, and I played a lot of basketball. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I left academia. Actually, uh, I, I kind of reached a point where. I felt like I knew everything I wanted to know about Russian history. (laughs) And and maybe I'm unusual in that way, but I was like, you know, maybe something else. And I was honestly interested in this question of how you get serious material out to a lot of people. Because I, again, I'd grown up in Kansas and I remember going to the library and what I would look at was Jane's defense weekly. I love those. I love Jane's Defense Weekly because I, I was into guns and tanks and planes and stuff like that. I played war games and all this other stuff. And my dad was in the army and my uncle was in the army and fought in Vietnam. And so I, I just was really interested in military history. And so I would go to the little library there. And it actually wasn't so little in Wichita. And, yeah, probably and I would a, look at books. That's probably yeah. a nice big Carnegie library. Yeah, not, actually was, well, it actually wasn't a Carnegie library. Yeah. No, we didn't have a Carnegie library in Wichita. I remember but the we, one in Clarinda, Iowa, when I visited my, my grandfather. Um, yeah, they, had, yeah, that it was wonderful. I was like, yeah, we, didn't, we didn't have a, yeah, yeah, we didn't have a Carnegie library, but we had a nice library. And I would go there, I'd take the bus and we'd, we'd look at, uh, you know, Jane's Defense Weekly and all these Jane's annuals on tanks and guns and planes. And it was really cool. And, and, I, you know, I was wondering, like, how, how do you get this material that we produce out to, to ordinary folks like me in Kansas? Because I, I would have listened to the New Books Network if I were, um, uh, you know, if I were in Kansas today. Mm-hmm. Hold it, I'm stopping this because my computer just went to sleep. This is the kind of thing that sometimes you edit out and sometimes you don't. Yeah, I don't know if my... I wouldn't if I were you, just so people know. <laughs> I, I, we're going to keep it in. I, yeah, but keep re- it in. Recording kept on going, though, I, I'm it sure. It did. Yeah, well, I was yeah. worried about that. That's why I stopped. Yeah. Sorry. See, no, folks? Yeah, these all, are complicated, these audio podcast gold. things. Yeah. <laughs> these podcast things are tough. Yeah, <laughs> we're behind the scenes. Yeah, exactly. Wires. Really? Yeah. So anyway, so I'd always been interested. So I left and um, I used to have told this story a million times, but I'll tell it again. I used to tell my students at Harvard, you have to do two things. Number one, you have to learn all the material. Number two, don't forget me when my resume crosses your desk. <laughs> and and that's what happened. Uh, I got a job at the Atlantic Monthly and one of my former uh, students, really, uh, she was working there at the time and kind of probably kicked my resume upstairs. And I don't know what happened. I talked to them a bunch and then they hired me. I don't know why. And uh, so I went to work for them because I thought, well, this would be a good way to get serious material out to common folks. Mm-hmm. That was when um, Atlantic was in a really interesting place, I think. Uh, well, it was, this was, uh, this Mike, was around Michael 2001. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah the, he had, he died while I was there. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. died so, in 2003. This, so. Yeah. So I was there and, and I got to work with some really interesting, great people and I got to learn about the magazine business and um, I got to do a lot of research. Actually, one of the things I researched was Wikipedia and I wrote an article about that, which was really cool. I didn't know mm. anything about it um, and it, it did influence me. But 
uh, I, I was kind of simultaneously thinking a lot about the history of communications. And what I learned at the Atlantic was that, and this will sound heretical, but print is the wrong medium if you want to reach people. Yeah. Well, because we were, people don't like to read. People were discovering that at the time. Yes, I think the really subscription were. numbers of the Atlantic demonstrate. Yeah. I mean, they may have, I really don't remember what the subscription numbers were, but I know that uh, there, there were certain things that happened, which were just for someone as old as I am, were, were quite astounding. So you're just in terms of delivery. I remember when uh, this was about 1998, actually, when Napster appeared. Mm -hmm. And Napster was the greatest thing of all time because essentially it was all music delivered to your uh, bedroom free. Yes. Yeah. Well, of course, it was theft at the yes, time. And I recognized it as stuff and I stole it too. And I yeah. admit it. And if the FBI wants to, whoever wants to can put me in handcuffs, fine. I didn't. I was so righteous and Simon no, pure. I, I didn't do it. I but stole I, it. I, I, uh, but I, man, that was the thing. I was a resident uh, director in a dorm. And, yeah, so uh, I, that I was, was just, my, that was our most pressing social issue in 1999 was stolen music. I swear to God, I imagine it, it, was, it was. Yeah, and I, you know, I, because, I, it because, was wrong. I'm just going to tell you it was no, wrong. Because, and I'm sorry uh, for it. If you go back and you look, you'll see how university administrations were panicked that the entire university would be sued by Sony or Columbia Records or something like that uh, for theft. Yeah. So yeah, I was really big into it because I loved music and I played in rock bands, and so I basically threw all my CDs away and downloaded about you know six hard drives worth of music and. <laughs> <laughs> like an, you know, an idiot, but uh, the of course, and of course, I don't have any of that anymore because of Spotify. But anyway, delivery is just it was just you know it was it was revolutionized. Like you could deliver these huge yeah. audio files. It was incredible. No, like that that had a great impression on me. And there was the whole Wikipedia thing, and that's like essentially people just like strangers who knew stuff were getting together, and the internet facilitated this, and they were writing these pretty good encyclopedia articles and zillions of them. Like, that's amazing. How yeah. does that happen? I mean, but you, know? you also wrote an essay in 2002, Note to Self, Print Monograph Dead, Invent New Publishing Model. Uh, so yeah. You've been thinking, uh, thinking about this for a while. Right, right? I had. Yeah, that, that, that essay, yeah, that essay uh, really has uh, gotten me, I think, in trouble. I don't know. That was a long time ago. Yep. But anyway, what happened was I, I was afraid, afraid of people my, still remember it. Yeah, I'm afraid they probably do. So anyway, what happened is this is 2002. It was, it was right around then. And and uh, I, I was leaving academia at the time to go work for The Atlantic. And I had this book that I had written. And it was, you know, it was about the 17th century Russian court. Mm -hmm. And it was largely lists. It was primary research, and you know, only of interest to specialists and things like this. And so, that what is the point of having a university press publish this exactly? I mean, mm -hmm. it's going to cost a lot of money. Nobody's going to, be able to buy it. Maybe libraries will do it. It'll it'll be a hassle for me, and you know, so on and so forth. So I just thought to myself, well, what if I just publish my publish it myself? And 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 so what I did is I learned how to make a book and uh, figured out all the software that's involved and learned everything there is to know about Adobe Acrobat and running headers and tables of contents and indices. And I made a book yeah. essentially on PDF. And I had founded the uh, world's first only and doubtless last <laughs> list for early Slavicists or people that study early Slavic studies. Yeah. And this was also kind of amazing to me because what I discovered was is that I could find them, all of them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. literally all of them, uh, and there are about seven hundred in the world. Yeah, kids, kids <laughs> I can tell you that kids listening to this, and 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 those even in their fifties, early fifties, might have forgotten that time where the seven hundred people in the world that knew something about something couldn't yeah. find each other except, uh, say, through comments or essays or book reviews right. in the back of very obscure journals. 
Um, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I found all of them and I had created on HNet, I had created this listserv for them and it's still active today. And basically I just made the book and I sent it to the listserv. Mm -hmm. I distributed it to everybody who could ever possibly want it for free at extraordinarily low cost. Mm -hmm. And uh, then it was, I also arranged to get an ISBN number for it. And I arranged to um, have it reviewed and I'd had it peer reviewed in the sense that I, I actually sent it to people and said, look, you know, just tell me what you think. And if you think it's crap, just tell me and I'll change it. Mm -hmm. And so I sent it to people and they read it and they changed it. And like, I essentially I had done, you know, I, 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 I did what university presses do, but in a really efficient way. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying that university presses don't do great things. They absolutely do. And I'm a huge supporter of university presses and I help them sell books and I want to help them sell more books. But I'm they, a it, big it, fan. It does take time because of the model that they have of doing business. Right, right. And I recognize that the kind of book that I had that probably could have been published by university press at a cost of ten or twenty or thirty thousand dollars just really was mm -hmm. a, a waste of capital. That would yeah. be misspent, misallocated no, capital. It made no sense. Cambridge, for example, it was certainly have published it. It would have cost about $150. It would have been beautifully put together. Yeah, I'm sure uh, it would be great. Uh, they would do a great job. About 200 people on the listserv would even have bought it, probably. Right, uh, that's exactly right. But I distributed it to everybody for free, and yeah. and 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 then they can they can since it's a Creative Commons license or whatever. I don't even know if I had a TM on it, but it was just like, yeah, send it to whoever you want. I don't care. And I put it on websites, and it's like anybody can get it who wants it. And it just seems to me that just made a lot more sense for a book that has really it's specialist literature that has incredibly small readership. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you know, how, for books like this, you know, libraries measure use in numbers of times it's checked out per decade. Yep. <laughs> per decade. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've read a lot of books like that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, everybody in graduate school does, but it just yeah. seemed to me like there should be this other tier. Yeah. It's below, that, that is still, it's vetted and, you know, the, the books look nice and, 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 and you know they're distributed in a better way, but but there's this other tier that's below the, yeah. the book that costs ten or twenty or thirty thousand dollars to produce and costs forty or fifty dollars to buy. And and these days, I would love to have a sort of Wikipedia model in which authorized people on that listserv have authorizations to make suggestions or even a certain high tier corrections. Uh, so yeah, sure. you, you have something that's updated like that. So it's half sure. And there are books like that. I, I mean, there are. And then I there later are. actually, yeah. I published. Well, later actually, I wrote, after I wrote that article in two thousand two, I, I uh, the, the open access publishing kind of became a thing. It mm -hmm. became big, and and I did publish a later book that I wrote. It was actually an edition of a seventeenth century Russian source. I published it with uh, an open access press. And they essentially just took all of the stuff out of my hands. I didn't have to make the book myself and that other stuff. And they did all the distribution and publicity and everything like that. But it's available for free online and you can just go get it. And it's of interest to about 10 people. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I don't probably mm -hmm. more. But uh, so I just think for books like that, it, it just makes much more sense. And it would be nice to see somebody get paid for it. And I hope that the people that do open access do get paid for it and they should be get, getting paid for it. Because it clearly, you know, I run a business now and businesses have to have revenue. There's yeah. just no question about it. And if you don't think a university or college is a business, then you're out of your mind because mm -hmm. it is. And yeah. that's the same is true of university press. It's a business. I'm afraid of majority people, regardless of political opinions, have the idea, though, that university and colleges are not businesses. But yeah, Well, that's the same. Um, don't, I know uh, it, it is, but I, I, it's an insanity shared by a very large majority of the population. I, I suspect. I suspect. Yeah, well, maybe, but they have to have revenue. Yeah. And the thing about it is there are lots of ways to get revenue if you're clever. 
And, and I just think that they, they need to be flexible and clever. I'm not, I'm not saying that what they do isn't great and the current mm-hmm. business model is, is completely unsustainable. It's a good business model, but it just needs to be adjusted in various ways. And I, 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 you know, I've tried to do some of that in my own career by some of these initiatives like you know, self-publishing this book and then Open Access Press and then this New Books Network thing. Yeah. And, it, it, would be, it would be very cool if a, if a university press could set up some sort of platform for such books. Um, I think they're doing it. I really do. I mean, there are a lot of very clever people working yeah, at university there presses there, and, and they are doing this, but again, they have the problem, which actually you mentioned in the pre-interview and that is analysis paralysis. Yeah. Anytime you want to do anything in a big organization with a lot to lose and these, you know, st- like, you know, Stanford university press, which is a little bit under the gun right now, they have a lot to lose. I mean, <laughs> someone like me, I really am like out of the what's the it's the Chris Christopherson Janis Joplin song freedom means mm-hmm. that something nothing left to lose that's really me like I can't <laughs> I, I, I'm very free because I nobody really depends on me I can't you know like I, I can't I, I guess I could be sued I don't know why anybody would want to I have no money um, but it's it's I don't have to be careful but people in that environment have to be super careful mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. what they do and and it makes it very difficult for them to. I think take on new initiatives. No, they, they definitely, I, uh, I know for certain, um, have friends, you know, as you do at publish at various levels of the university press industry, uh, and it's an industry and there are levels of the game. Um, and no matter, even when they go from one press to another, which has say twice the budget of the previous one, it's still as if they spend each day balancing on a sword edge, yeah. And on one side is is oblivion of the press and the other side is yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's a very books are a very tough business in general yep. and and especially because university presses have so many different constituents. It's you know, it takes a kind of a, an organizational genius to make one run, I think. But yeah. they they I, I really do admire those people. I do. Uh but I I think that the innovations in this industry, as in all industries, are come from outside. They come from people like me, essentially, and you, who are just I'm I'm not beholden to anyone. I mean, I don't have any institutional affiliation at all right now. Well, the New Books and, Network, you do. Well, yeah. the New Books Network, yeah, but like that's just me and one other person, essentially, yeah, yeah. and a whole bunch of guests or hosts who you know I can't fire them because they're volunteers. <laughs> it's, 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 the, it's the genius model of the Huffington Post, you know. Yeah, write, I like you know write all you I, want can, just for free. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, you know, it, it it just gives me tons of freedom to experiment with things and. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was experimenting with things when I had institutional affiliations, and sometimes they got me in trouble. And and so I just thought to myself, well, I, I you know, if I can figure out a way to get out and be on my own uh, as a kind of freebooter, independent guy, then I, then I will. And I think I think I finally have. So, so that's that's the origin of the New Books Network. That was trying to get serious ideas to a broader public who yeah. doesn't read. Yeah, well, the, the, I think the people read. It's just the thing about reading is, you know, I wrote a whole book about this too, history of communications, and and you know, it's it's a, it's funny because I I'm just finishing a book now on the My Lai massacre, which is 450 pages, about three hours, <laughs> and I wrote a book called the history of communications, which is like 450 pages, about four million years. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've run the gamut there. Yeah. So the 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 thing is, it's not that people don't read 
it's that they don't find reading natively pleasurable. And I always say the same thing, and I've said it many times before, and I'll say it again. We were evolved with uh, watching and listening organs, Mm -hmm. eyes and ears. They are very pleasurable to use, just in and of themselves. We were not born with any reading organ. Mm -hmm. Reading is hard. It takes a great investment to learn how to do. Some people, in fact, about 10% of them can never do it because their brains aren't wired up right. I had dyslexia when I was a kid. People thought I was slow. I may be slow. I may be true. But but it took a long time for me to learn how to read. It's still hard for me to read. And I think most people find it hard to read. That's perhaps perhaps why you have this perspective is the dyslexia. It might be, yeah. It might be, yeah. But I I really love listening. I listen to a lot of audio books and I listen to a lot of podcasts and I've always been into music. And I love listening. And I, I just think that if you look at the statistics, they're overwhelming. I mean, one of the things you can do, and again, this is something I say a lot, but we've run this natural experiment for almost 100 years now, and it works like this. Uh, For the same cost, you can either read the great works of world literature that is for free, or you can watch trash television or listen to trashy radio. (laughs) Okay, so which do people do? Well, okay, the, the evidence is in, right? We know what people prefer. And it is not Anna Karenina, which yeah. is, by the way, a great book. And I think you should read it. But if you're going to listen to, you know, uh, you're going to watch trash TV or listen to, you know, pop radio first. I mean, everybody is going to do that. Yeah. I mean, literally I, I, everybody. I mean, I'm, like, I'm, that's I'm, just the fact. I think that's that's true, although we also would see that in every other area of life. Um, basically, people always go with the past, path of least resistance. Well, yeah, that's because we're humans. Yeah, but again, right. I, I always say, you know, when you're designing a media model that, that its intention is to educate people, you should probably meet the people where they are as or, opposed to where you want them to be. Or at, because, least, or at least work their, your way down towards where they are. They might have well, to still take some they, – might still, they might still have to overcome some resistance. Well, right. And I think, you know, even in podcasting, they do because they have to figure out how to how to get them. And yeah. I mean, that yeah. is a certain amount of resistance. And, and we think about that a lot. But the point is, is that you're just not going to get people to read probably more than they do. Mm-hmm. And, I, 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 you know, does that make me a bad person for saying, I don't know, I just think it's kind of realistic. So how do you introduce this material to people? How do you get it to them? Well, you know, essentially, you put it in a medium that they enjoy. Mm-hmm. And that medium is speech uh, or video. Uh, and and that's the thing about podcasting is that what podcasting did was it dropped the cost of producing reasonable audio content through the floor. It became incredibly inexpensive to mm-hmm. do this. And, and that's really what I realized in, in 2007. I mean, uh, actually, the origins of the New Books Network – I think every time I tell this story, it's different. <laughs> which should tell you, which should tell you, don't trust historians. Yeah, well, because, you know, like really, it's like really uh, changes. Uh, on the other hand, no historian would be surprised by this. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Every time it's different. But I remember when I was working at the Atlantic, the guy who runs it, a really smart guy named David Bradley. He was the head of the, uh, the entire corporation, and, and he started these consultants. Very bright guy, and he said, you know, I bet you that. It, that professors are sitting on a whole bunch of really interesting topics. And I had been a professor, so I'm like, yeah, you, you know, I think they are, David. He goes, well, why don't we call some of them up and ask them what they're working on? I'm like, yeah, I'd like to do that. <laughs> I'd love to do that. It's yeah. like a dinner party, but at work. Yeah. And, yeah. and so essentially, this was in about 2002. I just did all these calls to professors kind of at random and said, what are you working on? 
Yeah. I didn't record the calls at the time. I sat there and I took notes on the computer. And so I said, wow, that's easy. And they were always very willing to talk. Yeah. You know, because nobody pays any attention to them. Right. Well, <laughs> nobody that, paid any attention to me when I was a professor. Well, that was that was the except at conferences. And then it can be, and then everyone's like coming up to you for something. So I, yeah, no, I, right. I in, a, in many ways thought, well, oh, this is what I want to do. This is, I want to, I want to have like the best part of a conference is conversations with people who are, do, who are doing interesting things. I'm curious about what people are doing. I just call them up and, rec and record the conversation. That's, that's what this right. is. Yeah. Right. And then, and then what happened, this was a couple of, this was like six or seven years later. I, I was, I was still working at the Atlantic and I had written this article on Wikipedia or something. I don't forget. I think it was Wikipedia. And this guy who's actually become pretty famous called me on the phone. And he said, you want to do an interview? I said, sure, I'll do an interview. How are we going to do it? And he said, well, I'm going to record you. I said, really? How do you do that? Tell me how you do that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I remember just like a light bulb went up above my head. Yeah. I'm like a light bulb, like, hey, you know what I could do is I could interview historians with new books and then I could do what this guy's doing and I'll distribute them on my website because I already knew how to make websites because I already done that before. Mm -hmm. It's like, I can do that. I didn't even know it was called a podcast. It's just like 2006. Was it even called I, a podcast? I guess it was called a podcast. It was <laughs> called a podcast at the time. Yeah. I, I didn't really know what they were. Yeah. But this is 2006. I remember very well. And I'm like, I kind of put those two things together. I'm like, yeah, you know, I could do this. And so I put it in my back pocket and then I went back to academia for a while. And, um, and that's what the, you know, I, that's basically when it started was in 2007. It was in 2007 that I started to work on the podcast. So and the idea originally was just a test. I mean, again, it was one of these experiments. I, I told the anecdote earlier when I, I think in the pre-interview where I went to ask the people at the University of Iowa where I was working, I said, you know, I think I want to try to do this and it would be a good method of dissemination and, you know, uh, professors do three things and one of them is service and service is outreach. And so I'm doing the good work at the university. And they said, let's have a meeting. <laughs> and I said, I don't want to have a meeting. I just want to do it. And uh, I, I don't, I don't need a meeting and I don't need your money and I'm just going to figure it out. But you did want to be recognized for your service. Well, I did, but I didn't really care that much at this yeah. point. I was like, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I, I really didn't care very much. I'm, I, I, you didn't, you didn't need those points. Okay. No, I'm not really into points. Points yeah. are not kind of are really not my thing. And I like making things. That's really, I like making things. And I wanted to make a podcast. And so when they said, let's have a meeting and talk to deans and we'll work with the people at IT and, you know, so on and so forth. And I'm just like, I don't want to do that. So how, how, and, did, how did this thing then grow into this? Um, yeah, that, like this, that's an interesting question. It's like an NPR uh, it's, yeah, it's well, been, uh, station of, of intellectual yeah, talk. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And Originally, when I started it, it really was just an experiment because I didn't know if anyone was going to listen. And the advice that I was getting, and remember, I had just come from the Atlantic, where the mantra was, everything has to be really short. Mm -hmm. It must be short. People's attention spans are short. Mm -hmm. They have the time crunch. They are suffering from what we call the time crunch. They don't have enough time. And so you have to basically meet them where they are and that is with their short attention spans and, and and i'm like well okay i kind of agreed with that but i, I mean i really did I, I did kind of agree with that i'm like you're right they shouldn't be too long these recordings these interviews and it's probably best that they're 15 minutes or something like that i, I really agreed with that at the time 
but I just can't talk to somebody for 15 minutes. <laughs> I just can't do it. That, that's as much time as most historians can describe their argument. Right. I can't even like, I can't begin to have a discussion about somebody in 15 minutes. I just can't even, not even close. No way. Yeah. I've heard. And so I've heard, I just said, yeah. yeah I heard I just Jack, like, Jackson Lears, the uh, historian uh, who I know a little bit, he loves to say that's why historians can't give TED talks. Uh, yeah. By the time the 15 minutes are over, they're just like, they've just explained how they're complicating the matter. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and and I, I'm the same way. I'm like, I, I, I really like 15 minutes is just not enough, period. And, and so I couldn't do it. And so I'm like, well, yeah, they probably should be 15 minutes, but I can't do that. So I'm just going to talk as long as it takes. So I would basically, I'd call these historians up or whatever, and nobody knew what I was doing. And I said, okay, can we do an interview? And they're like, okay, whatever. And I, I called them and I would get their book and you know, I'd look at the book and I knew a lot about history anyway, so I didn't really have to read the book completely. And I would talk to them and we would have these really, I thought they were pretty interesting conversations. And I stuck them on the web and I got some server space and made a website and see if anybody will listen. Well, and they did. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, to make a long story short, they did. Hundreds of people listened. And I began to get emails from people saying, will you interview me? And then uh, I began to get emails from uh, publicists at presses saying, will you do my books? And I'm like, well, okay. Yeah, I still had my day job at the time. I mean, I was still a professor. Mm -hmm. And I was doing one interview a week. That's, that's how aggressive I was. One a week. That's actually, I'm doing one interview a week. Uh, I, yeah. And it's, uh, if you want to do other things, it could be kind of difficult for, for, yeah. for me. I mean, I was doing one, one a week. And so, so some, some very, some things happened in my life that I won't go into. And it became pretty clear that I might be leaving academia. And, uh, and I, that wasn't, I wasn't particularly against that because I'd always <laughs> had this kind of like love hate relationship with it. And I, you know, I just, I, I, it was frustrating for me. I, I very much admire people that, that that can go into that context and stay there and work very productively. And I think they do great work. I just wasn't one of those people. It was just too hard for me. I, I was bridling. I was I was bucking. I was, you know, it was too it was too hard for me. But mm -hmm. I really admire those people that could do it. But I I couldn't. And I kind of looked into myself and said I can't do that. And uh, so I started to think about whether the new books in history model was applicable or could be made applicable to other disciplines. And I thought, I, I don't really see why not. And it was kind of fortuitous because at the time, other people, a couple of other people had contacted me and said, you know, what if we did this for anthropology? And I said, well, whatever, go do it. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't. And so then I, I think it was in about 2010 that I contacted a couple of people and said, would you like to produce something like new books in history for philosophy or gender studies or African-American studies or something like that? And, and I contacted people that I knew at Iowa and some other people that I had known over the years. And that really was the origin mm -hmm. and just started with a few channels and I taught them how to do the podcasts, which is pretty easy. And uh, I basically made a bargain with them, which has turned out to be probably the most hugely successful thing I've ever done in terms of producing the podcast. I said to them, you're the talent and I'm the producer. Mm -hmm. So all that you have to do is pick the books, familiarize yourself with them, and talk for an hour or so with the author and send me the recording. That's all. I'll do everything else. And that everything is actually quite a lot. 
what does it, it mean? means I have to maintain the websites. Right. I have to do all the audio editing. I have to produce the podcast. I have to track the metrics. I, I have to uh, you know maintain the files. I have to work with the server and all of this other technical stuff, which these people don't want to do and they should not be doing huh. because their expertise is not in that direction. I just happen to cobble together these resources because I don't know, I'm kind of stubborn. I just like, <laughs> I was not going to have the IT guy do it. I was going to learn how to do it. And so essentially that bargain that I make with them and I still make with hosts, it's a very attractive one for them. Sure. And, and you can see why, because I essentially give them a podcast and I didn't think about it that way at the time. I really didn't. Uh, I just thought like, I'd like to, you know, this seems to work and maybe we can get more listeners and I think it's a great idea and we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. And so then it started to grow and other people in other disciplines started to contact me. This was like in 2012, 13, 14, 15, started to contact me and they said, you know, can we do this for military history? Can we do this for psychology? Can we do this for, you know, whatever? And I said, sure, I'll set it up. And at that time, I had become pretty good with computers and I, I, I knew how to do it. And, and so I just allowed it to grow organically. Hmm. And when people contacted me asking for channels, I would say, well, <laughs> it was really always the same. You know, you want a channel in Caribbean studies? If you'll host it, you can have it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the deal I'll make with you. But if you won't, I'm not going to set it up. So, so it grew. this is just, so, so back to this, how to get serious historical ideas out to a wider public. It basically, this is like you know, putting out salt for the cattle and new books network. You just, you're just putting it out there in the best way that you can. Um, some of these conversations say in, in, in books on genocide studies, they can be pretty grueling. Yeah. Uh, uh, but the, assum the assumption is, is that if you put it out there, the people that want to hear something about genocide studies will come and have a lick. So mix my metaphors. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I, I don't, you know, one of the, the, the primary rule on the New Books Network, we have like 350 volunteer hosts now, uh, is that the hosts pick the books. I never have anything to do with that mm -hmm. uh, because they're the experts. The people in genocide studies know what's best in the field and may have sense a sense of what people should be listening to or want to listen to. I don't. So I, I simply am a producer and, and I allow them uh, almost absolute free reign on what they're going to do. Uh, and, and this would include all manner of books on all manner of topics. I can't even begin to tell you. We've done, we've published about 6,300 interviews on wow. just everything now. And I mean, you know, we went from one a month, or what did I say, one a week, <laughs> one a week to now we do seven a day. Yeah, it's pretty over, seven it's pretty, interviews a day. It's pretty overwhelming to see those yeah, drop into your, uh, you know, yeah, your feed every day. Yeah. Yeah, it's a huge flood of stuff. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that it's a little bit like I th I've begun to think of it a little bit like the newspaper. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't mm -hmm. read the whole newspaper every day. The New York Times is big, man. That's like there's just too much there. Or the Wall Street Journal. You're going to pick a few things and you might look at them. Mm -hmm. That's really what it's like. It's not, it's not. You know, I, I don't expect anybody to listen to all or even most or like even a small fraction of these things because there are all these micro audiences out there that are interested in, in this material. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're not, they're not very big. That's okay. 
And then there are all these drive-by people who are just, you know, like, oh, God, I didn't know that existed. And then they can listen to somebody talk about it for an hour. And maybe they buy the book. Maybe they don't. Mm -hmm. They've been introduced to the topic. And I think that's great. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I, I can say in uh, with no humility, but <laughs> in honesty, that I think that the New Books Network is the biggest and most successful academic outreach program in history. Yeah, I mean, right. I, we reach, we, re, we download about a million episodes a month. Wow. And that's, that's with no advertising whatsoever, all organic. We don't do any advertising. We have never paid for advertising. We do things on social media, but most of it's just kind of word of mouth. You know, like people know about it and they come and they know what they're going to get. And it's not great. You know, it's not cereal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> cereal is great, but it's not terrible. You know, it, it's somebody pretty smart talking about something they know a lot about. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing. You know, that that's that's a good thing. And it's free mm -hmm. and it's easy. So I, I feel, you know, that it's been it's been very successful um, it's not been terribly remunerative, I can tell you that, but it, it, uh, it, it's been successful. It's, it's achieved its mission, I think, and continues to do so. What, one of the things you talk about in how to read a history book, and one of the things I've been thinking about for a long time is arguments. And um, uh, there was, I think it was in History Today, which is an excellent sort of probably the best yeah, it's good. academically focused popular history magazine. Um, and what I mean is there's no, there's not much fluff in it. Um, but it's, uh, so there was a, a round table they had on documentaries and, uh, one person pointed out that what they would really like in a historical documentary is talking heads who disagreed with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or to have a documentary in which an other two multiple points of view were built in. That would be of course, very confusing. It's not the way say the American experience works or the yep. best history documentaries have been done in the United States or Britain for that matter. Um, yeah. But I've often wondered, geez, how can I really get some people? And it's difficult when I'm doing say ancient Greece. I don't read Greek. I don't know enough yeah. to really disagree, but I want to be able to push back at people and to, uh, and to not just sort of recite the book to me uh, because I want, listeners to this is this podcast is, is is named historically thinking i want them to hear thinking aloud um i want them to, to, to be able to understand that's what historians do yeah that's a it's a hard thing i mean i i remember like firing line that's before a little bit before my time but you know um, right. william buckley oh, yeah, used yeah. to have people i need to argue with them in a very genteel way in a weird accent yeah um <laughs> But I, I like those shows. Uh, and you can still watch some of them on YouTube, and that's fun. Phil Donahue, it, it is, Phil Donahue did that. You look, watch some YouTubes of Phil Donahue back in the day. It's really kind of spooky. It. Yeah. Uh, it's actually very interesting. Yeah, it, it's a hard thing to do uh, because academics are very decorous. Uh, they don't yell at one another. They well, sometimes uh, they do. Uh, well, they sometimes do, not very often. Mm. But they observe, they observe usually a certain decorum. That's true, and it, it can become kind of esoteric at, at certain times. I mean, you know, I, I think that probably the best you can do is I don't know if you listen to like. Mm, I mean, it, pu pushing back is hard, and uh, honestly, on the New Books Network, we don't do it. Hmm. Because what our, our our primary focus is to allow the authors to tell people what is in their book, mm -hmm. 
in their own words. There's at least as I conduct the interviews, I, I don't tell the hosts how to do it. I, t- I don't push back. I, I will occasionally ask a skeptical question, but generally I just want to hear what they had to say. And the critical acumen then rests in the listener's head. They are the ones that are, are thinking, oh, yeah, it's bull. Or, yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I, I want to stay. And that's I always say about the New Books Network, we don't do reviews. We're, they're nothing like reviews. But we don't evaluate the books. We're not even recommending them. We're just saying, this is what's in them. This is what the author wants to say to you. And it's up to you to, to decide whether you want to hear it or not, or whether you want to push back or not, or whether you get angry about it or scream at the uh, computer. It's a, that's a totally up to you. But we, we don't do interviews. Now, I do, I do totally agree with you that uh, that kind of interchange is very can be very enlightening. It's also very hard. Very hard. You have to be really well-prepared you have to do a lot of editing. I mean, I don't know if you ever listened to like, I'm trying to think of an example, like like Sam Harris. Have you ever listened to Sam Harris's podcast? No, I haven't. Uh, well, anyway, Sam Harris, he's kind of a public intellectual and mm-hmm. I think he's a good model for this kind of thing. He does push back hard on a lot of his uh, guests. He's a very equanimous sort of figure though. He doesn't get upset really, uh, but he does push back and, and they have actual arguments. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, really, you can hear it, uh, not so much in the tone, but in the substance of what is said, that he will argue with his guests. And uh, I, I find that very hard. <laughs> I don't, I, I'll do it with a friend, yeah. but I won't do it with a stranger. Mm-hmm. And, but he does it. And, and again, I, I, he has zillions of listeners and probably for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, so, and yet history is an argument without end. Uh, yeah, history, we're always it, having arguments with one another. It's a it's a very it's a very hard thing, mm-hmm. um, you know. And also, we we I think most historians, I think most historians, I hope most historians, we're really about finding out what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and and that's the focus of what we do. We, we try to find out what actually transpired. You know, it may be true that there's no such thing as like objective reality, but it's a pretty sensible thing to think. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if, if you have myths to live by, that would be a good one. You know, again, it's a little bit like, there are a lot of myths like this. Like, if you think about porcupines throwing their quills. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't actually throw their quills. But that would be a sensible thing to think, because it would tell you to stay away from porcupines. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny that you're saying this. I mean, you wrote a prosopographical study of the Russian nobility. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. like the, yeah. that's like as, as, as Gedanken, yeah. you know, yeah. this is yeah, high sure. German serious scientific yeah. historiography. And now you're yeah. telling me to like that, to hold on to some historical myths. I mean, yeah. well, no, what, no, what I'm saying is, is that, you know, uh, no, uh, I think what I'm saying is, is that, you know, that there is, again, uh, you can go read history and theory or one of these journals and, and about how there really isn't such thing as objective reality yeah. and so on and so forth. But it's, a, in my mind, that's a very good myth to live by. Mm-hmm. It, it may not be true. And it's true that everything is subjective, blah, blah, blah. And everything is a narrative, blah, blah, blah. But it's a pretty sensible starting point to say there really is this thing that's outside of us that that is ascertainable by means of perception and is manipulable 
by means of reason. Yeah. Those are sensible things to think. No, they, and, they, they, they completely are. And I've, you know, they're better than anything else yeah. we have. This is my first week of my history class. Uh, yeah. Like trying to convince undergraduates that things are true-ish. Uh, <laughs> and that, you know, yeah. we, we know that Cornwallis did surrender at Yorktown. Right, we, exactly. We, but there, there really the, is this bedrock. Yeah, yeah, we don't know if the band played The World Turned Upside Down. But right. in a way, in a way, who the hell cares? Um, yeah, right. The fact, I mean, the, the again, fact is that he surrendered. Yeah, I, I, I really, you know, and then the introduction to uh, how to read a history book, I, I think I say, and this is, I, I'm somebody that is kind of a philosophical bent, and I've, wrote, I've read all of these articles about the subjectivity of yeah. history and narratives and all this other stuff that you're a Foucault and all this other business and power and knowledge. I, uh, but the thing about it is, is I, as I write in the introduction, I said, you know, nobody has really improved upon the dictum that historians are really about trying to find out what happened in the past by means of artifacts from this place, the past that have been brought into the present. Mm-hmm. That's really what we do, period, end of story. Now, it's true that it's more complicated than that, but really it's things from the past that have survived. Mm-hmm. They exist in the present. If they did not, we would not know about them. And we look at them and we try to figure out what happened in this place where we cannot go called the past. I, w- I would add humans to that, but the, otherwise... It, um, yeah, sure, I, right. But the, but the point is, is that it's only because of these artifacts yep. from the past from this place we call the past mm-hmm. that we cannot go. So it's a little bit fictive in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we surmise that they're from the past. <laughs> there may be some evil deceiver that just like placed yeah. them there one millisecond ago, I, I, but we, I, we're guessing. That's getting on the verge of saying that there is no France. People just say. Yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. I've never been there, so it doesn't exactly, exist. Right. Well, that's a real hardcore empiricism. But yeah. yeah, sure. But my point is, is that I don't think really that's been improved upon. And what do we do? We try to tell true stories about the past. That's pretty much mm-hmm. it. I, I don't know what else can be said. And this is from somebody that like has written, you know, historiography, philosophical historiography articles that are just illegible. They're so <laughs> full of crap. <laughs> but I have nothing more to say than that. They're essentially, we we just look at artifacts in the present that are from the past and we try to figure out what the hell happened. And and that, that that's what we do. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I was interested because, you know, historians are always taking turns. There's the moral turn, the linguistic turn, yeah. and the geographical turn, turn, the spatial turn, the cultural turn, and all these turns. And I'm like, I don't know what any of that means. I really don't. I yeah. I don't want to be, I mean, actually, this this isn't cynical. I've really concluded that a lot of these turns, especially in the last 20, 25 years, those are, uh, I don't want to, those are really increasingly um, attempts to grab a slice of what everyone sees as a shrinking pie. Um, I guess that's right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I certainly. Yeah. Yeah, in some ways, that's a noble <laughs> institutional yeah, I, uh, thing. But when when I hear someone say, "Well, you haven't studied the the, the history of uh, of you know Southern Slavs." Uh, that's been a neglected history, uh, and I realize, oh, you know, we're worried about preserving the Southern Slavic uh, Studies Association or those chairs yeah. within. Right. Yeah, the, yeah, and, sure. I mean, and, you know, okay, yeah, that's a problem, I guess. Um, well, you know, I was in a field that essentially died. I mean, early modern Russian studies. I mean, they're probably, there used to be, you know, there used to be somebody at Washington that did it. There used to be somebody at Chicago that did it. There used to be somebody at Harvard that did it. There used to be somebody at Berkeley that did it. Those places are all gone now. Yeah. And, you know, I, do, do I regret that? Well, it wasn't particularly good for my career. But, 
<laughs> but, but, you know, do I think there are more important things? Probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah probably. I, 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 got, I don't know. I mean, it does. It does. I, God, I'm such I'm such a romantic. I feel that that gives me a sense of loss. So I was talking to a previous guest um, uh, recently, Michael Word, about his book on samurai. And it was the first, I think, um, Japanese historian uh, that I've had on the on historically thinking. And so I was shocked to find out that not many people study classical Japan or oh, no, get jobs. Yeah, no, yeah, no. And it was like, and classical Japan yeah. just means like sort of pre-1200, pre-1100. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. Well, that's, well, that's, that's kind of yeah. sad. I mean, it's, it is kind of sad in some way. It's kind of well, sad. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it, it, look, it, it is it, what it is. People, and, are, know, people are upset that species are dying in the rainforest. I can be upset that, you know, uh, historians are being, you know, that, that, that certain subjects of history are dying off. And I, I think it's, it, I, I guess that's right, it's the I, same thing as far as I'm concerned. I, I agree with you, and I, I don't want to push back too hard on this because I, I just I just feel like there is a kind of baseline relevance question. Mm. There, you have to answer the who cares question, and you know, oftentimes when I was studying early modern Russia, I did find myself trying to answer this question, and I I sometimes, you know, am I just gazing at my navel, and because really not not very many people cared. And I, I did because I knew all the people who did care, and I was one of them. Mm-hmm. And I did try. I did try. I wrote a book called "The Russian Moment in World History," which uh, is probably the most read thing I've ever written in terms of academic work. It was especially all of Russian history in a hundred pages, <laughs> and it has an argument about why Russia is the way it is, and it tries to trace back the way Russia is today to things that happened. Uh, essentially in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, That was really the kind of formative epoch of of Russian history. Uh, And so I was trying to make an argument for the relevance of this. Um, But, you know, history is a bunch of stories and different people want to hear different stories. And what it was decided by people who were a lot smarter than me is that the people didn't need to hear these stories anymore, that they need to hear different stories. And, well... Uh, I can't really, does that make me sad? Well, I guess, but it, there's not really anything I can do about it. So <laughs> I'll do something else. No. You know, it's, it's not the end of the world. No, I'll do something else. I mean, certainly at the time it was not very much fun, but uh, I'm a resourceful guy and, uh, you know, I, the world is the way it is. I sound like a Buddhist now, don't I? Yeah. The world is the way it is. Or, or I can't or really do much about it. Yeah, I can't do much about it, so I've got to adjust. Yeah. So I, I did. Yeah. Well, um, that's <laughs> that's a, quite a place to end, but we should probably end it there. Oh, but you know, I should I should I should also yeah. say that you know, for people that are interested in in, um, you know, there are a lot of things you can do. <laughs> yeah. With with, with I, I I'm I'm not a big fan of what uh, the American Historical Association keeps saying about how useful a PhD in history is, because I think that I, I don't, I, it, it's very frustrating to hear them say It this. is because as somebody who runs a business yeah. and has worked in corporations, yeah. I, it, it's very frustrating. It, it really is. And it, because uh, really we should not be accepting, uh, we should be accepting about half the PhDs. Yeah. That, that, that's essentially, or, or, or that's or essentially a third right. of the people on the PhD bro. Yeah. That's essentially, that's essentially that's probably right. too much. Yes, that's, that's probably too many. Yeah. Yeah, but I would I would encourage anybody who listens to this, you know, that they can always reach out to me and, and I can explain to them what I did in order to kind of craft 
you know, and I had tenure, I, I left. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually quit. Well, that's just crazy. Um, anyway, go on. Well, you know, like I said. Yeah, I, yeah, I understand. It's, I, it's very know, admirable, but it's this is the. Well, I don't think it's admirable. It's just something I felt like I had to do. And it, okay. it, uh, it, it, it just, you know, that there are lots of, there are lots of options. It's just that the things that you learn in graduate school will not help you. Huh generally speaking, in what I might generically call the real world. And I had to unlearn a lot of things that I learned there uh, in order to do what I did. And yeah, I'm not the most successful guy, but I, I did manage to actually keep my foot in intellectual life, mm-hmm. which I'm proud of. And I managed to build a business, which I'm also mm-hmm. proud of. And I managed to produce something which I think benefits millions of people. I'm proud of that. And I managed to do it while keeping my soul. <laughs> so that, that's kind of a good thing. And, you know, I have a house and kids and all other stuff, too. I mean, I, it's that's nice as well. So, you know, I would just encourage anybody who listens to this to it's fine to reach out to me or anybody else who's essentially made the transition out, outside the academy. If I am outside the academy, I can't quite figure it out yet. Um, <clears throat> We're, you're, you know, and I'd be happy to talk to anybody. My guest today has been Marshall Poe. He's the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. Marshall, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.